Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Call Michael now. 041-983-2000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Monday morning, the 20th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. There is hope this morning of a pause in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. A five-day ceasefire now seems possible in return for the release of some hostages being held by Hamas. That may give some space to get aid into the hell on earth that Gaza is before the killing starts all over again. The situation in the Middle East is growing more dire by the hour. The war in Gaza is raging and risks spiraling throughout the region. Divisions are splintering societies Tensions threaten to boil over. War may not be forgiving, but there are rules for everything, and that includes the rules of war. At a crucial moment like this, it is vital to be clear on principles, starting with the fundamental principle of respecting and protecting civilians. I have condemned unequivocally the horrifying and unprecedented 7 October acts of terror by Hamas in Israel. Nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets against civilian targets. All hostages must be treated humanely and released immediately and without conditions. And it is uh, the unrelentless uh, bombardment of uh, Gaza and the Israelis' killing of thousands of Palestinian civilians that led to thousands of Irish people marching over the weekend and calling for the Israeli ambassador to Ireland to be expelled. Protection of civilians is paramount in any armed conflict. Protecting civilians can never mean using them as human shields. Protection civilians, protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the south where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine, and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the South itself. I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. 
the Secretary General to the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, speaking there. Now, a motion to expel the Israeli ambassador, as you know, was defeated in the Dáil last week. This week, a second motion calling for the expulsion of the ambassador will be put before Dáil Aaron. Let's speak to Independent TD, Peter Fitzpatrick. And a very good morning to you, Peter. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I take it uh, that you will vote against the people before profit motion on Wednesday coming as you did the Social Democrat uh, motion last week. Why is that the situation? Why why are you uh, opposed to expelling the ambassador? Michael, as I said, Michael, uh, I, I will be opposing the people who vote profit next week. Uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not as simple as, as being black or white. Uh, I, do, I do maintain that we need to keep the diplomatic pathways open. As you've seen this morning, Michael, hopefully we should be getting more hostages released. I think it's very, very important that uh, like, you know, we keep the communication line open. But, Michael, first of all, Michael, I, I did answer that question, but first of all, Michael, I want to condemn uh, the Hamas terrorist attack on October the 7th, which killing over 1,200 people and, and uh, uh, taking 240 hostages. I also want to uh, condemn the Israeli attack on innocent uh, Palestinian civilians, uh, I believe killing over 13,000, including 5,000 children. It, it, it's wrong. It should not happen. Unfortunately, it's always the innocent uh, who, who pay the price. Uh, I think a lot of work has been done over the last 12 months. Oh, sorry, last week. Uh, last week, Tarnish and Michal Martin went, went to Cairo. He, met, he went there to meet uh, leaders face to face. At the same day, he was over there, 23 hostages were released. Uh, these police include Abraham Halaga. And if, you, if, if, you're, if you're listening this morning, we'll have seen him on the, on the TV at the weekend. Indeed, we heard from him on the programme. Oh, we, we were speaking to him on Friday here on the programme, for that matter. Indeed, uh, a very lucky man to get out. And undoubtedly, there's others uh, who are stuck in Gaza hoping to get out. But there is the real prospect that this week all Irish citizens and uh, their dependents will get out of Gaza this week uh, and it's possible that little Emily Hand who you spoke of uh, will get out under this truce if there is to be this five day pause in the hostilities I do believe Michael if we if we if we if, if the likes of our government and uh, our Taoiseach the government the Tarnasha I think a lot of work has been done uh, a lot of meetings have taken place there at the moment is uh, our Irish troops are over there at the moment there's approximately 500 uh, of our Irish troops over there in the Middle East Mm. At the moment, and and the terms Ireland are making a, a substantial contribution towards peacekeeping. Uh, I think I, I think nearly all the countries in the world, I think Ireland's the one that that's that's really doing a lot of work. And in fairness, Ireland at the moment are diplomats, they're working very closely with the Americans and, and our other European allies. Like we all want this to stop. Mm. Like, I, 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 but I but but if know, by Wednesday, when this people before profit motion comes before the House, if by then all of the Irish citizens have got out of Gaza and Emily Hand, the hostage, the only Irish hostage, uh, I think, has been released, uh, will you still oppose the motion to expel the Israeli ambassador? Michael, let's not forget, Michael, we have still 500 troops over in the Middle East at the moment. Is I've been contacted by a lot of families over the last week uh, concerned about their loved ones. And, and uh, people might realize that there has been two attacks in, in the Lebanon, and uh, there has been casualties of, of, of UN of UN personnel. So there's a, there's a lot more. Like there's a lot more things that have to be done in that. Michael, like I said, yeah, like the, the, the World Health Organization uh, went into the hospital that weekend there, right, mm. Michael? And uh, uh, what the scene was unbelievable. Like there was 31 children 
I'd like you with it from that hospital. That's that's day. that's why that's why thousands yeah. marched on Saturday to expel the Irish uh, ambassador or the Israeli ambassador to to Ireland. That is why people before profit are putting their motion to the doll this week. That's why the Social Democrats put their uh, motion to the doll last week. Uh, and I repeat the question: If the uh, Israeli or if the Irish uh, passport holders are, are out of Gaza and uh, Emily Hand, the hostage uh, being held by Hamas, is released by Wednesday, would you support the motion under that circumstance? No, Michael. I keep telling you, Michael, is we still got five hundred of our Irish personnel over there. There's thousands of people. Like, what, what, what difference would a, expelling the Israeli ambassador make to the five hundred Irish troops, peacekeeping troops in Michael, Lebanon and and? Michael, uh, it could stop the Israeli bombing Lebanon or maybe killing some of the Irish people. And there's millions of people over there. We have we have to look at the bigger, bigger picture. There. You don't really believe that Israel would bomb the Lebanon if Ireland expelled the Israeli ambassador? Michael, Michael, no, Michael. As I said earlier on, Michael, right? There's already been two two attacks on the Lebanon, and uh, and uh, a Ghanaian peacemaker was, was shot, and he was he was injured. My fear there at the moment is, and I've been contacted by a lot of Irish soldiers' families over the last number of days at the moment, is, and I, I still do maintain, Michael, dialogue is the best way going forward. And as I said to you, like, what happened uh, over the last week or so of, of, of getting uh, 23, I believe it's up to, up to so I was 40 mm. of, 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 of hostages, we need Irish hostages, and I still do believe there's a lot more. Michael, we, we, like, but do you, do you believe that Irish, Irish peacekeeping troops are going to come under fire from the Israeli army? I don't know, Michael. I don't have a crystal ball, Michael. But as I said already, Michael, they have already been attacked. So don't see any reason why they might attack them again. Well, I mean, you're talking about uh, peacekeepers uh, under a United Nations flag. Uh, that would be an attack not against Irish troops. That would be an attack against the United Nations. Like you look, for example, what, what's happening in Gaza at the moment is there's no water. There's no food, mm. there's no electricity. And that's children, why people want the ambassador expelled. That's the reason that some people are calling for the ambassador to be expelled. I mean, we're all acutely aware of the dire situation in Gaza. We're all acutely aware of how many civilians are being murdered by the Israeli army. It's a, a war crime. Uh, and that, uh, I think, is very clear listening to Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations. Uh, we're very uh, distressed, uh, very difficult to watch the television to see what's happening, uh, but uh, impossible to even think of all of the children who are dying, of any child that dies under these circumstances, let alone 5,000 children, and indeed the lives that they're living now before their deaths. Well, do you honestly believe, Michael, that uh, if, if we had expelled the Israeli ambassador there last week, that we would get these hostages released? The, di- the di- dialogue is very, very important. I do believe that diplomats play a very, very important part in the, in the conflict over there at the moment. Is. And I, I'll tell you one thing, the, the, what I've seen in the TV over the last number of weeks would really you know, put, put a tear to a stone. And like the mm. last, 45, last 45 days has been absolute torture. Now, the people of Ireland had experienced mm. a, lot, a, lot, a lot of this over the last number of years. You go back there, Michael, to the Omar bombing there, mm. when there were 29 uh, people killed, including a seven-month-old woman who had twins there. And, and like, with the Good Friday Agreement and everything else, dialogue was, was a very, very important mm. part of that there. I do believe that dialogue is a very, very important but part But I go back altogether. to my question, seven weeks into this conflict, and whilst uh, the Irish government had an argument last week that its 
first priority has to be to its citizens, to Irish citizens caught up on, on this, uh, in this, and for that reason, not expelling the ambassador for fear of impacting what would happen. It, it, going back to my question, if by Wednesday, if all of the Irish citizens are out of Gaza and Emily Hand has been released by Hamas, would you then support this motion to expel the ambassador? Michael, I already answered that question, Michael, and I told you I, I would not support. But why? I mean, I mean, the but, Michael, cre- but I'm just trying. To, I'm, I, I'm not arguing with you, Peter. I'm just you're concerned after after the Irish citizens are out, uh, which looks quite plausible, if not possible, by the end of this week, and Emily Hand is out over the course of the next few days as well. Uh, the argument changes somewhat from prior- prioritising uh, your citizens uh, as a government. So I'm trying to work out why, if that was the case, you'd still be opposed to expelling the Irish, or the Israeli ambassador, excuse me. Uh, is it because of the concern that you have for Irish peacekeepers? I said that almost 10% of the Irish army is, is deployed in the Middle East, and I am very, very concerned. I, 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 I said to you there, and I keep repeating myself again, is I've been contacted by, by, by families of Irish soldiers who have actually deployed in the Middle East, and they really are very, very concerned. And they don't want the Irish government to leave them isolated there on their own. And I, and I repeat myself again, there already has been two attacks on the UN personnel in the Lebanon at the moment, and I am very, very concerned. And I, I think, and as I said to you earlier on, too, the Irish government is working very, very closely with the Americans and the United and our allies. And what we're trying to do is get a, get a peaceful solution done. Is who, like, like, like they said, yeah, over 13,000 people has been has been murdered, and, yeah. and, and the rest of children have been murdered. And, and, and it, it, like, if this ceasefire does happen, and it'd be very, very important that we get in, that we get into these hostages in, in, into Gaza, and we get our food. I, I get think, our water, I, I think many people would say, if Israel was to attack United Nations peacekeepers, that in itself would be reason enough for expelling the Israeli ambassador, would it not? Michael, yes, it would be, Michael. But, but, but I'm trying to say at the moment is, Michael, they've already attacked the United Nations twice in the Lebanon, the series of the hostages of personnel. So uh, a lot of work has been done in the last 45 days. And as I said, the experience that we have with the conflict in, in the island of Ireland over the last number of years, we have, we have 25 uh, years of peace. And I think once and for all, I think I think I think the, the it's, it's the world stage at the moment is everybody's looking to see exactly what's going to happen in in Gaza. Like as I said, yeah, the only people it's the innocent people who I really 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 feel sorry for. And I would like I would like them to think that the Irish government is going to walk away. I, I think it's very important that we sit around the table. Uh, as I said, yeah, Michal Martin, our Tornish, went over there last week. He met the Palestinians, he met the Israelis, he's over there mm. at the moment. And, and, and in fairness, you can see the difference the communication has made in the last, in the last week. And hopefully we'll be getting uh, Emily home very, very soon. Hopefully we'll be getting more. I mean, surely Ireland's voice, though, is drowned out in, in any discussion outside of those discussions relating to Irish passport holders and Emily Hand, who's being held hostage. I mean, it's implausible to think that Ireland could have any influence over what happens next in this conflict uh, when uh, you've uh, the biggest nations in the world are, who are rowing in on it. Israel has the support of the United States, of the United Kingdom, uh, of Germany. Uh, the Irish voice doesn't matter in that context, does it? Well, put it this way, Michael. If we if we expel the ambassador, yes, we, we'll have definitely no we, we'll have definitely no hand in it. 
as I said, yeah, like, uh, but Ireland, would, would Ireland, we not be making a statement that would get worldwide attention uh, and would focus minds on as to why Ireland made that decision uh, and if there was any merit in the argument for making that decision? Well, in fairness, Michael, I think we got worldwide attention when Autonomous went over there last week over the Cairo. He met the Palestinians, he met the Israelis. We got 23 people released that day. We've over 40 people released at the moment. Is. So I'm saying the opposite there at the moment is like we we're known as being peacekeepers. We're known as you know the, like Ireland forces have been over the world for the last number. I think there's three decades of uh, family has been over in the Middle East for the last number of years, and I think we've done an absolutely fantastic mm. job there at the moment is. And I think people do look at Ireland. They do look at us as, as, as like, like what happened in the island of Ireland. The, the, you know the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago. Like that came to an end, and people in the in, in the island of Ireland are living peacefully. Mm. So we would be hoping that the same would happen in the Middle East. And I would hope and everybody that would I, hope I, that. I, but the the chances are that this is going to spread, isn't it? And spread to the Lebanon. It's uh, quite likely that that will happen, uh, and uh, we'll find Irish troops caught up in the middle of uh, this conflict. How concerned would you be if that was the case? Mike is very very concerned, Michael, because a lot of like there's a lot of innocent people, and you say especially children. But, Michael, I am going to say one thing, Michael, in the programme. I am really proud to be Irish. I'm really proud what the government has done over the last week to get the Irish, Irish citizens out. They're still in negotiation, and please God, we get more citizens out today. We all want to see a bit of peace in the world at the moment. Is. And for a wee small country like Ireland, we are really are punching above our weight. And I do believe the likes of America and our European allies are looking at We'll give them the example. We've done it in our own island, and hopefully we'll have to do it in the Middle East. I'm very, very proud to be Irish, and I'm very proud the way our Irish government's done. Like you know, we could turn men, and we could, last week we could have, we could have, we could have expelled the Irish ambassador. Would we where we are today? I don't think we would be. And I think it's very important that we keep the channel open, we keep communicating. And I think Ireland, as a very, very small country, has a big, a big, a big, big thing to say in peace becoming in the Middle East. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. We'll be hearing much more about this uh, during the week. Uh, that motion will go to the Dáil on Wednesday that people before profit motion uh, on expelling the Israeli ambassador. If you'd like to comment on that or something else for that matter, if there's something on your mind, you can do so by ringing us on 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658, email michael at lmfm.ie and our thanks to Independent TD for Louth and East Mead, Peter Fitzpatrick for joining us today. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reed Show brought to you by Airgrid managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it Hospital consultants say they're concerned about the outcomes of patients in the northeast and that care locally is being compromised because of increasing waiting lists, overstretched emergency departments and growing cancellations. Uh, let's hear a little bit more about the problems in our local hospitals. Martin Varley is the Secretary General of the IHCA. That's the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Good morning to you, Martin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. You're obviously concerned uh, and your concerns relate to all of the hospitals in the northeast region, do they? Yes, Michael, and good morning. Uh, yes, consultants are quite concerned about the capacity tests across the region. So you've got four significant uh, acute hospitals uh, in the area. And the concern is that patient care is being impacted due to growing waiting lists, increasing number of patients on trolleys, 
and the cancellation of uh, hospital appointments due to unfilled consultant posts and a shortage of hospital beds and other facilities. And we've looked at the stats, and the stats, unfortunately, are going in the wrong direction in terms of waiting lists and trolleys. And in fact, when you look at the number of beds being added in the region, uh, not a lot has been added uh, compared with what's been done nationally. And, and, you know, the region has a low number of acute hospital beds uh, on a population adjusted basis. So it all points to a capacity deficit that needs to be addressed by the government. Okay, and part of the government's efforts uh, to address that capacity uh, was uh, to deal with waiting lists for outpatients and inpatients. Uh, There was this waiting list action plan that should have applied to this year and resulted in fewer patients. Uh, But there's actually more people waiting, are there? There, there, It looks like by the end of the year we'll have more waiting. So the government is on course to effectively miss the waiting list reductions that they had in that plan. Uh, this year, it looks like they're, they're going to miss it by about 4,000, uh, partly because they're not going to get the reduction they had anticipated or planned for. And in fact, the numbers on waiting lists have gone up. And if you look back over um, a seven, eight year period, uh, the numbers on waiting lists have gone up by about 7,000 in that period. And the miss target this year is probably close to about 4,000. So if they had achieved the target, it would have put a dent in what was an increase that was uh, unacceptable in itself. Uh, but it's not looking like that's going to happen at this stage. And again, mm. it points to the difficulties with capacity in the region. If people listening to us aren't waiting on a hospital appointment, it's quite likely that they know somebody who is. And you'll be waiting all the longer, uh, depending on what the appointment is for. There's particular problems, uh, you say, in orthopaedics, urology, dermatology, rheumatology and cardiology. Yeah, those five specialties account for a 51% increase in the waiting list for outpatient appointments. Uh, The biggest increase has occurred in cardiology, where the... Uh, the numbers waiting has more or less uh, gone up by threefold compared to 2015. Uh, rheumatology has more than doubled. Dermatology has gone up by 45% and urology has gone up by 40%. Now, the concerns we have and consultants have is that the longer somebody is left waiting, uh, there's a risk of uh, skin cancer, for example, being missed and uh, are not being, uh, being identified because of lack of appointments, etc., uh, and likewise, for for cardiology, is a high risk and from a cardiac point of view and rheumatology mm. and neurology as well. And that's so, because of a, a lack of consultants, is it? Well, one in four of the permanent approved consultant posts in the region are not filled as needed. Uh, so it's a combination of that together with uh, the lack of capacity in the hospitals for outpatient appointments, inpatient daycare appointments and for treatment. So it all comes as... Uh, effectively an integrated package one mm. should be moving quickly from one to the next but if you don't have sufficient number of consultants and one in four twenty five percent of your approved consultant posts are actually not filled as needed some are filled on a temporary basis uh, that's not going to give you the optimum care that you need and let's not forget no. ireland has something like 40 percent fewer consultants to start with uh, compared with the european average so if you have one in four of the approved posts unfilled as needed, then then you are in a very difficult situation. And are, are they funded posts? Uh, I mean, is the they, pro- problem that people don't want the jobs but the jobs are being advertised? Well, that's the difficulty. They are approved, therefore they're funded and they could be filled on a permanent basis and even can be filled on a temporary basis. About half mm. of those, one in four, are filled on a temporary basis. So it's proving more and more difficult to recruit consultants uh, in, in Ireland. There's a lot of competition abroad from abroad. 
And also when you're not in a Model 4 hospital, the level of interest tends to be somewhat lower. But I think with right terms and conditions and with proper capacity in our hospitals, we would be in a much stronger position to recruit and build those posts. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Mm. If, you, if you have highly trained consultants and doctors, they like to work in a hospital whereby can, they can treat the patients on time. So putting the capacity in place is essential, both from a patient point of view and a consultant point of view, and even for frontline workers to ensure they can work effectively. Uh, it's doubly difficult to work in a setting where you don't have the capacity to treat patients in time. Mm. Yeah, or, or the ability for a different reason, which is that beds are being taken up by people who have been medically discharged and have no real need to be in hospital, but there isn't another place for them to go. Uh, and you say that Drogheda is one of the worst hospitals in the country, that Our Lady of Lourdes uh, quite often has the largest number of patients who are medically fit for discharge. Yes, and, you know, that's, that's a separate issue. Obviously, uh, having adequate capacity in hospitals is essential in the first place, uh, but it's equally important to have capacity in the community. And that, that means step-down facilities, mm. be it home care facilities, be it nursing home uh, space, or be it rehab space. So we, we, we actually have looked at those figures, and we don't think enough has been done by the government in that regard either. In fact, there's been very, very little increase yeah. in community nursing home beds and we hear a lot about do more in the community. But if you don't have the capacity in the community, you can't do more. And then, unfortunately, to no fault of the patient, uh, they're clinically discharged. They're waiting to mm. go on to the next step of their care. And it's not there for them. So they're, they're, they're in hospital. They're in a hospital bed and they don't need to be in hospital. They're not being cared for in hospital uh, in a way that uh, would be exclusively possible in a hospital. It could be very well cared for in the community, in a nursing home uh, and so on. That's why they're called bed blockers, uh, which is an awful term and nobody likes. Uh, but uh, it explains it possibly to people listening to us this morning, which is why I, I'm using that term, Martin. But the government has said that they're going to act on this now and that anybody who has been medically discharged from a hospital will be moved into the first available nursing home. Is that something that the IHCA supports? It's not something we've actually taken a definitive position on. Our, our main concern is that any patient who has completed their hospital care and is fit for discharge should have the wherewithal, the facilities available to them to go on to the next step of their care, whatever that might be. It might be, as I said, uh, home care, it might be nursing home or it might be rehab. So what the government is addressing there is saying, well, if we don't have a place in uh, close proximity to your home, your preferred location, and we offer you something else, then we're asking you to actually take that instead. And the argument is we've got a lot of people on trolleys, etc. So mm. there is sense in that argument. Uh, but the real problem uh, and the real solution is you need to have adequate capacity in place in the regions in close proximity where people need it. And then you would have the problem. In the and you've issued a statement in relation to that and criticised the government again or the Department of Health for failing to deliver enough beds for this region. A thousand beds nationwide, 74 uh, opened across uh, the northeast. Uh, we're promised 1,500. No, I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to even put it. We were promised 1,500 beds next year, I think. But that seems to have evaporated somewhere because of... Uh, the budget estimates for the year ahead and it looks as though those 1500 beds are no longer being promised yeah and we very much welcomed the announcement by the minister about six to eight months ago in this regard where he, he promised 1500 rapid build acute hospital beds to be delivered this year and next 
and six surgical hubs to be opened to, to create greater capacity for uh, inpatient day case treatments and four new elective hospitals. Now, unfortunately, despite his announcements, and we don't doubt his bona fides, <clears throat> the government didn't see fit to fund that in the budget. <coughs> Excuse me. So that, that's extremely disappointing because uh, we have spent the best part of a decade at this stage looking for increased capacity. And while we've seen a thousand beds being opened since COVID, and that was very much a response to what an obvious glaring problem that had arisen at that stage, we still have a glaring problem with hundreds of patients on trolleys, hundreds of patients um, who are clinically discharged and growing the waiting list. So mm. uh, th- this is something that needs to be done. And uh, we have not got an adequate answer yet from the government as to why those acute additional beds weren't funded in the budget, despite mm. the announcement of the minister. Like, we agree with his analysis. His analysis is very much in keeping with our own. We might have wanted more beds, but 1,500 was, <clears throat> was a real step forward and should have been delivered and still should be confirmed and delivered. So we, we'd be looking for commitment on that. Otherwise, what's happening is year after year, there's no real solution being put in place. And all these things combined feed into the concerns that consultants have for the care of patients in the northeast. I think, Martin, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Martin Varley is the Secretary General of the IHCA, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. To the murder of Irene White in Dundalk back in 2005. Time marches on and the man who had Irene White murdered is still at large. Let's speak to Stephen Breen, who's crime correspondent with the Irish Sun. Because, Stephen, there are those who believe no, who paid for Irene White to be murdered uh, and a file was actually brought to the DPP. But the DPP uh, on Friday uh, announced that uh, this man will not be prosecuted. Uh, Take up the story from there, if you would, please. Yeah, Michael, I think it's important also to remember the work that Anne Galcassian did over the years. Anne was Irene's sister and Anne passed away uh, from an illness in 2019. Now, she was instrumental in continuing her a campaign for justice for her sister. She continued to press for proceedings to be brought against Anthony Lamb and Niall Power. She knew the full story behind this. That did happen, both Lamb and Power are now serving life for murder, but following Anne's passing in 2019, um, Anne's husband, uh, Kenny Delcassian, uh, continued her quest for justice, and he uh, was represented by Belfast-based solicitor Kevin Winters, and the hope that they had was that they were continuing to work closely with the Gardaí. And obviously, two men had already been served in life for murder. But for them, the ultimate objective was to apprehend and to charge the individual that they believe paid uh, Anthony Lamb and Niall Parr to murder Aaron White. That Lamb's considered to be the mastermind behind this murder enterprise. Um, so the guards continued to work in the background. They put a file together in terms of the evidence that they've gathered. Uh, that file was sent to the DPP last year, and the DPP had been considering it for quite some time. They also sought senior counsel as well to oversee um, the, the findings that the guards had made. But unfortunately, on Friday night, uh, Kenny Delcassian was informed that the DPP had decided that there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges 
against the individual, mm. uh, they believe uh, was the mastermind behind Irene's yeah, And murder. they had believed, obviously, that there would have been a, a charge, uh, at least. Uh, and El Cassian uh, was somebody who tirelessly campaigned for justice for her sister. People will remember Anne uh, on this programme speaking to us uh, about what happened at Ice House. Uh, in Dundalk back in 2005 countless times she never gave up uh, the fight and it's her husband now Kenny who's taking up this fight uh, uh, and he's going to challenge that decision made by the DPP is he? He, he is I mean he's um, he, when I spoke to him on Friday he said he was vibrating with rage at this decision but um, obviously the, um, he has been speaking to his legal representative Kevin Winters um, Kevin uh, can, Winters confirmed that he did act on behalf of Irene White, but there were a number of avenues open to um, the Cassian family. One is that there's a possibility that they can sue the individual that they believe ordered this murder for unlawful killing. The other one is that they intend to uh, make correspondence with the DPP to ask them to explain their decision, uh, the reasons behind they made their decision. Uh, that avenue is an appeal process where they challenged the DPP you know, in correspondence to outline why the decision was made. So mm. by, by all means, obviously they were disappointed, but they are still continuing their, their fight for justice. And if the family uh, go ahead and take civil proceedings against an individual for the unlawful killing of Irene White, will that individual be identified and named publicly? That individual will be identified. Those civil proceedings will be issued in the High Court in Dublin. There's not uh, any prerequisite where you can't identify an individual, you know, in relation to civil proceedings taking place. Of course, it's a matter for the court. You know, this individual's legal team may make a request for anonymity, you know, as the proceedings continue, but that, that very rarely happens. So this individual uh, could be named, and it will be a matter of, you know, public record that, you know, the individual will be sued. Uh, on the basis of the, the evidence and the findings that the Cassian family have gathered over the years that they maintain this individual should be held accountable and that way he could be um, put forward for uh, a civil proceeding where, where compensation could be paid you know, to the to the Circassian family. Mm. I, I suppose uh, the most uh, high-profile case such as that that comes to mind uh, would be in the case of uh, the Oma bombing where civil proceedings were taken uh, against individuals uh, who were not prosecuted in a, a criminal court. Uh, but uh, it is... Uh, a very different case and it'd be a very complicated uh, case at that, I, I take it, Stephen. Yeah, very lengthy process as well. Just Alma is a very good point that, that you made there. The, the High Court in Dublin obviously ruled that there were people who were liable for the Alma bombing, but unfortunately, due to the lack of evidence, you know, no one was really held accountable um, for the, the Alma bombing outrage in 1998. But you, you do have people who were named publicly as being the ringleaders and being masterminds behind the Alma bombing and were ultimately responsible. So. This could be a very similar process. It, it does take a long time, but um, on the basis of the, the, the DPP's ruling, you know, last week, you know, I think it's just one of the the, the options open to mm. Kenny Delcassian, but but also the hope that perhaps in a, in, a, in a civil proceedings, if evidence is presented to that court, then perhaps that evidence could be used in a criminal prosecution. So there's there's a long way to go in this process. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Stephen, thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. That's uh, Stephen Breen, who's crime correspondent with The Irish Sun. 
The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by AirGrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Uh, World Vision is uh, the largest international child-focused humanitarian and uh, developmental non-governmental organisation in the world. Over 34,000 people work for World Vision around the world in 100 countries where they impact on the lives, they say, of over 200 million vulnerable children. Let's uh, speak uh, this morning to Gillian Barnett, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of World Vision Ireland. Good morning to you, Gillian, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today to talk about your Enough campaign. This is a global campaign to end child hunger. Uh, and in line with that, you're releasing an Ipsos survey uh, which uh, highlights how much uh, the problem is uh, and how many children are impacted uh, uh, people uh, will be very surprised I think uh, to hear the amount of uh, children who are dying from hunger and malnutrition across the world it's a problem that has got worse this year after 40 years of declining numbers tell us a little bit more about your survey if you would please Gillian Oh, thank you, Michael, and uh, thank you for speaking with me this morning. Um, and actually, it's a wonderful day to be speaking to you because today is actually World Children's Day. Um, today, in 1959, the rights of the child was adopted by the UN General Assembly. But as we celebrate this anniversary um, of the Convention, we are, as you've already said, witnessing the largest global child hunger and malnutrition crisis in modern history. And today... As we speak, 35 million people are on the brink of famine. And it's a really sad um, indictment that nearly half of all deaths in children under five are as a a result of this undernutrition. World Vision are indeed launching our Enough campaign. There are 8 billion tonnes of food every year, and that is enough food for every single person living in the world today. And we're finding that children are bearing the brunt of this unequal food system. Mm. It is disrupted by things like conflict and climate change, but they have had enough, and we are standing with them to say we've also had enough. Yeah, well, because because children are dying. Um, As you say, there's enough food in the world, there's enough money in the world, and uh, based on that, uh, no child should go to bed hungry, let alone die of hunger or malnutrition. Uh, Why is it the case? Uh, I think conflict uh, is quite often part of the problem, is it? Yes, we find that nearly um, nearly half of the children in the world who are dying with malnutrition are living in areas where there is conflict, um, and that that you know it's just shocking, really. And um, but we also do know that that most people, when you ask them, would say they would love an end to hunger. And we know that every world leader and politician, you know, would say the same. But the problem is that there has been a distinct lack of progress um, on any of the, the hunger and malnutrition targets for children in the world. And so it really now is time, if we do want to make any impact at all, that we have to stand and say we're joining with children around the world to make sure that they do have enough nutritious food to survive. Right. I I think it's very easy to get distracted uh, from some of uh, the problems in the world because of uh, the conflict in Gaza now, which has focused all of our minds. And perhaps we can talk about that in a a moment. Uh, But maybe uh, you could tell us about the situation in uh, places uh, that have been the uh, areas where we've seen conflict uh, recently, like Afghanistan. Uh, I think uh, people are bracing themselves for the winter coming there, are they? 
Yes, they are. So Afghanistan is, is one of the countries where it is absolutely the worst place in the world to be a woman and uh, a terrible, terrible place to be a child. We know that um, the world's focus is now not as much on Afghanistan as it was um, a few months ago when they told, uh, or when the news came out that they were stopping girls from going to school. Um, and there has been a little bit of progress on that in terms of younger girls, but we are still in a position where older girls are still not um, able to access education, which then, as you can imagine, then leads on to them not being able to earn their you know, children as they grow older. They're not being trained in really critical skills like midwifery, which means then that when women do get pregnant and have to give birth because of the cultural sensitivities there, they're often being left with untrained women to deliver their babies. So the whole situation in Afghanistan is is one of um of great of great worry to most um most well, most people. And there there are not a lot of agencies left now in Afghanistan. Well Vision are one of the few agencies left there um working with, with children in particular. Mm. And can you get in and ensure that children are fed in Afghanistan or in any of uh, these countries around the world? Yes, yes, we can. So uh, World Vision is the world, the largest partner of the World Food Programme. And so together with the World Food Programme, particularly in Afghanistan, World Vision Ireland are working very closely to make sure that um, that actual food is being, is being um, granted. And in, in most, not all, but in most areas of conflict, there, there are usually humanitarian passages where agencies um, can get in and provide, um, provide food. <clears throat> it's often not easy, but usually that, it is that is the case that they can get in. Right, we're talking about an awful lot of people who are hungry, though, aren't we? Uh, the number of people who are uh, extremely hungry or suffering from extreme hunger, if you, you prefer, has doubled. You say in the last uh, three years to fifty-eight countries around the world. We're talking about two point four billion people who didn't have enough to eat last year alone. Uh, it's an exceptional challenge. It is an exceptional challenge, and World Vision have already launched a global hunger response. Um, that's the largest emergency response we've ever taken, and so far we have actually managed to reach 22 million. But um, as you said earlier, Michael, the um, the crisis has been worsening. So we, we were we were improving things, but in the last number of years, the situation is is declining to actually the point where you'll remember Live Aid and the awful harrowing images you saw of um, of people in Ethiopia Ethiopia at the time and we are actually now back into that um, situation so you know a lot of agencies are, are you know focusing on on this uh, wow. hunger crisis um with with World Vision, we as I say we've started the global hunger response but we but it wasn't enough and so that's why we are all focused so the entire organization around the world in the hundred countries are focusing now on what we are calling our enough campaign to say that there is enough food in the world for every child and that we've had enough of the food systems and the distribution being so unfair. Mm. Um, yeah, well, it's every child in the world and it's across uh, the world. Uh, as you say, the Horn of Africa, probably one of uh, the worst corners of the world because of a uh, succession of years where there's been no rain simply and it's led to drought. Uh, but uh, you say from Bangladesh to America, children are hungry. That includes Ireland uh, as well. Uh, yeah. And if there is all of the money in the world, if there is all of the food in the world, I take the reason why there's children hungry in Ireland or Bangladesh is because there isn't the will to feed those children. There isn't the will to share. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So I think, the, I think if you drill down, most people would want children to have enough food. But the problem is that there isn't the will to change the systems that are apparently quite imbalanced. And so... We we are really calling that children's voices are heard because they've got amazing you know they've got amazing opinions they're living through it and in fact actually today on uh, on our Instagram channel and Warbush and Island children are taking over the 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 site and they're going to be telling us themselves in their own words what they think and ideas that they have it's really really important to listen to children but it's also very important that because children are the most vulnerable in every society that you know they don't have agency they that that we give them that agency and that their voices are heard and that most importantly policies are spe- specifically include the rights of children which are often different to the rights of other adults in the policies that we're that we're creating um, can you talk to us about Gaza, which is undoubtedly the biggest challenge for NGO, any, any NGO in the world at the moment? Antonio Guterres over the weekend talking about a trickle of aid getting into a notion of need. Uh, there is nowhere near enough aid getting into Gaza, in other words, and that will continue to be a, a problem for some time to come. But there is hope of this five-day pause now in return for the release of hostages. Uh, how much can be done in five days, do you think, Gillian? I think it's very welcome. The news is very welcome. Any news that um, says of any cessation to violence against children um, is always very welcome. And I think that um, the you know agencies there are are ready to go. There's there's aid there, so they they just need that safe passage to get in. So we're you know that's it's a good piece of news. Um, and we just need to pray. I think that 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 continues. That that the enabling of aid getting in uh, continues. Okay. Well, if people wish to support your Enough campaign, uh, they can do so through your website at worldvision.ie, I think. Yes, that's perfect. Thank you very much. It would be really fantastic just to visit it, see the see the stories from the children themselves on the site 
And if anyone does have any uh, money that they can spare coming up to Christmas, it would be really gratefully received and the impact will be massive. So please do visit our website. Okay, worldvision.ie. Gillian, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. Gillian Barnett is the Chief Executive Officer of World Vision Ireland. Call Michael now, 0419832000. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. It seems that anybody you could think of speaking to is opposed to the British government's legacy bill, that is, except uh, the British government. And there has been talk for some time that uh, this legislation would be challenged by the Irish government. Let's hear what the Taoiseach Leo Radker had to say about this last week. Uh, Once again, I want to state that the government believes that uh, this is the wrong approach uh, to legacy and reconciliation. It's not supported by any of the major parties in Northern Ireland, which is significant. Um, we, um, we have received the legal advice from the Attorney General, um, and this is an essential contribution to our consideration on whether or not to take a case or to support a case taken by a third party. We're studying the advice and considering the next steps, looking at the implications of such a decision. Uh, this in- includes the potential impact on the bilateral relationship broader political and civic concerns in Northern Ireland on legacy issues uh, and among victims groups and families across Ireland. I want to stress that the initiation of an interstate case would be a very significant step and would have to be taken on solid grounds. It's not one which we would take lightly. Uh, Based on the Attorney General's advice, um, there is a a period or or a period during which we can take a case and after which it becomes more difficult. So we'll have to make a decision on this uh, in the next few weeks. Taoiseach Leo Bradker. Let's speak uh, to Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Meath. Fergus O'Dowd, who's uh, chair of the Oireachtas Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Fergus O'Dowd, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I'm not sure uh, what uh, way you would interpret what Leo Bradker had to say there, bar one bit, which is that the time is now to decide on this. Yes, it is indeed, and our committee is very clearly of the view and has been for some time that once this legislation was passed, uh, and we went in fact to the British Parliament and the politicians over there to give our strong views on it, that the Irish government should, if necessary, take that case. And obviously we've been meeting this week, and I would presume it will be discussed there as well. And clearly we would support the move, and the Taoiseach, what he said was, I think, is that there's a time for taking it and there's a time after which you you can't take it. So clearly he has to have to give due weight and consideration to his legal advice, but clearly that says you can't take the case and I believe we should take it. Mm. And I don't think there's anybody or any political party, north or south, uh, that would disagree with that. Right. Uh, I, I think that probably is what uh, the Taoiseach was saying. By not saying uh, he's ruling it out, it, it would mean that the legal advice says uh, that there is uh, the plausible conditions for taking such an interstate case. Uh, do you believe it's a winnable case? Well, I believe it is because the, the European Convention on Human Rights, the British government, are signatories to that. And that's in Article 2, as I understand it, there must be a due legal process for you know for for legal action, mm. and the legal action that won't be available after this, because somebody can opt in uh, to look for an amnesty for what they did, means that you cannot challenge them in the courts. And the decision, which previously would be up to the director of prosecutions in the north, 
to decide whether somebody should be criminally charged or not, that that is done away with. And also the civil right that you have to ensure that there's an inquest into the death of, of your family member. And don't forget that in the case of obviously Bloody Sunday, families waited 38 years to get the truth of what happened to those appalling events. Uh, that's also denied. So I think they're very strong cases. Uh, but clearly, obviously, I, I personally believe that the British government is has taken all of this into consideration. And one of the big pressures uh, that they're under, which I don't obviously agree, they should have, they should be able to stop. You know, mm. they, they should be able to influence uh, human rights issues. There are two hundred former soldiers who would have served in the British Army in the North, and their association <clears throat> is strongly in favour of this legacy bill. Um, and I think that's probably the pressure that they're politically under. But I mean, human rights are, are, are you know, they're, they're for all of us, and they cannot be denied. This bill, uh, this law now, it changes that. They are denied. And I think the Irish government uh, must take this case, notwithstanding the difficulties that will create for intergovernmental relations, <clears throat> which haven't been great, but they have improved recently. But I think we have to go ahead with this with, with this challenge. Do you uh, feel concerned at all that human rights are for everybody, but possibly in the mind of uh, the British government uh, that uh, they apply to some people more than they do to others? Uh, absolutely, uh, because if they, if they like the, the, everybody is entitled to, to, to ensure. Sorry, if if my mm. if my family member is murdered or killed illegal, you know, murdered basically or killed. I'm entitled to a due process on that death, and the, the civil and the criminal part of that is taken away uh, by this bill. But the British and government many times over have shown scant regard for international law or human rights. Uh, we certainly saw it uh, in terms of some of uh, the manoeuvres to do with uh, Brexit when it came to international uh, agreements. Uh, and I think uh, it's argued as well uh, that uh, this particular legislation uh, could be at odds uh, with the Good Friday Agreement. And most recently we've seen uh, the Prime Minister gave two fingers, really, to international law in relation to sending immigrants to Rwanda. Yes, indeed. And yeah, obviously, the courts in Britain have found that illegal. But clearly, the present British government uh, have members in it who are totally, uh, I suppose, extremely right-wing in many respects. And, and that is a fact. And that's why we're travelling uh, next week from the well members to, to the British House of Commons. With the Labour Party, uh, Labour Party people there, including Hilary Ben, ben mm. the Northern Ireland spokesperson, uh, to talk to them about what they might do, um, and obviously to iterate to them the promise of Starmer uh, that he would look again at this legislation uh, if and when he becomes Prime Minister. So there are changes afoot, mm. and I suppose one could argue, notwithstanding Cameron and Brexit, that if he's the new Foreign Minister. In Britain, that he may, he may. I'm not saying he will. Uh, you know, he has some understanding, certainly, of what happened in Derry. You know, that maybe more moderate voices uh, may have a greater influence in, in in British politics than they presently have. Okay, and so, uh, when you're at meeting uh, with uh, Labour. Uh, members of uh, the Upper House next week. Will you be asking them uh, about Keir Starmer if he's uh, the next Prime Minister uh, and if he will uh, call a border poll here? Yeah, well, I think the key thing about a border poll 
is that is in already in the, the Good Friday Agreement. It is part and parcel of the agreement uh, that at some stage there will, or if the obviously the, the decision was that it would be up to the British government to decide if they believe that such a poll would mm. pass. Um, but you cannot, you cannot, and I believe that obviously opinion is changing in the north. There isn't a majority right now for a border poll, but I believe there will be, and it's up to us in the south and in the north to try and find a new forward. Um, you know, and uh, you know, as what options could be on the table that would allow unionism to be part of a new island, a new island. And uh, I think uh, we're saying goodbye to Fergus Hotel there by the sounds of that. The line has just dropped out and as I, I gather, uh, apologies uh, for that. Uh, not sure what happened. Uh, we will try to get Fergus uh, O'Dowd back uh, on uh, the phone there. Uh, but uh, I was uh, going to ask about uh, the convention over the weekend uh, because uh, we're talking about Keir Starmer possibly being the next British Prime Minister who's going to be the next Taoiseach or when will we, we be voting on that? It certainly seems to be uh, something that is being talked about now and uh, there was a, a lot of focus uh, on the next election. Uh, it would seem from reports at the Fine Gael Convention over the weekend. Uh, we Fergus O'Dowd back on the line. Apologies to you, Fergus O'Dowd, and uh, our listeners as well. I'm not sure why the line dropped out, but thank you for coming back to us. Uh, you were talking uh, about a border poll uh, and that at some stage you believe that there will be the conditions to hold such uh, a vote. Uh, one of those conditions, as I was saying a second ago, could be a change in the administration in the UK and the Labour Party government and uh, Keir Starmer as uh, Prime Minister, uh, which uh, thought might lead us to talk of a, a general election in this country. Uh, it seems as though there was some talk at the Fine Gael Convention over the weekend. Yes, indeed, and, and many people... Uh, at that Finnegan Convention, we're talking about what the future will hold and how we can ensure that that we find a new way forward um, on the North. And I think that the old ways of expecting a united Ireland, um, you know, um, you know, we we have to change what the offer is going to be. It can't be just what is you know what many nationalists uh, would want. It has to also include what unionism would want, and to find a new relationship. And the New Ireland Forum, which was referred to uh, by, by the Tichuk as a possibility, although he, he said it was it might be premature now, but that's where the nationalist parties, North and South in the 1980s, got together, <clears throat> uh, working together as to what the future might be on this island. Well, I think if we can get and encourage uh, unionism to participate in a forum, um, you know, or if, and that is the great challenge and the great difficulty because obviously they won't discuss the basis right now. But to talk about how how we can operate, what new confederation, what new relationship we could have that will guarantee the Britishness of unionism into the future for as long as they want it, and also the nationalism of nationalists. Uh, I mean, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. We've been mm. trying for a long time but that is the only hope for the future I believe is to work together and put make it make it make it make an offer a historic offer to unionism to participate fully and to give them power in 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 a share of power 
in a new Ireland. That's that's what we have to look at, I think. Okay. Well, as you said, uh, there's a short window of opportunity for the Irish government uh, to take uh, this case if it decides that is what it's going to do against the British government on the legacy legislation. Can I ask you about the prospect of a a general election here, Fergus? Uh, A lot of people saying it'll be next year sometime, maybe an early election in the spring next year, maybe after the budget. Uh, what what would you think? Uh, do you think there'll be an election next year, or will it go on until the year? I, after? I think there will be mm-hmm. one next year. I think I think that um, I think obviously you know we've been in power now you know for for over twelve years, and I feel that obviously the economy, while it is in a very good position right now, uh, the, the, you know the international situation is not as good as it was, and the economy is not getting the benefit it got from obviously exports that we got from the pharmaceutical and the scientific sector. So so things are going to get tough enough, I think, in the next year. And people will have a choice to make as to what government they want. And I think I think the election next year, uh, I, I personally would favour one. OK, we live there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That is Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath and the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reed Show brought to you by Airgrid managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it We'll uh, speak now to Fine Gael Senator John McGahan who's on the line and is looking for a number of drinks uh, to be barred from being sold in Leinster House Good morning to you Senator McGahan Thank you indeed for joining us on programme uh, this morning. These are our companies uh, that are, are making massive profits in Russia, uh, sponsoring the war against Ukraine uh, as you put it, uh, and you want their drinks to be barred in Leinster House. Uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. <clears throat> and the three companies are Bacardi, Mondas and Pepsi. And those three companies are part of 36 companies that have been placed on the international sponsors of war list. And that contrasts with 1,000 companies that have withdrawn entirely from the Russian market since 2022. But when you mention the profits of it, just to give you a brief rundown, take Bacardi, for example. Their profits have increased from $3.2 billion to $4.7 billion. That's an increase of 206% on profits. When you look at Mondes, they've increased from $900 million to $1.3 billion. Uh, that's an increase of 300%. Uh, and they paid $61 million, Euro, uh, million dollars in tax to the Russian Federation. And finally, with Pepsi, they announced they'd pull out of Russia. They didn't. They just rebranded all of their products. They're currently advertising 580 job vacancies in Russia. Their profits have increased by 330%. Mm. And that's, they've paid $115 million in tax to the Russian Federation. So three companies in the space of 12 months have paid $188 million in US dollars in tax to the Russian Federation. That's directly aiding the Russian war effort. And the reason why Is they're it that making... simple, though? I mean, didn't McDonald's pull out of Russia, but uh, they were just taken over by the Russian government. All of the McDonald's shops remain open, selling all of the Mac burgers or whatever. Maybe they're Vlad burgers now, but they have a different yes. name, rebranded and so on. Uh, and that is one of the problems for companies who are in the situation. They'll pull out and somebody will take over what they were doing and make all of the money that they've not uh, decided to take off the Russian people. Well, that's that's actually the exact same example that uh, Mondale used. They said that we're staying in Russia because we're fear or fearful of our products falling into the wrong hands. It's got nothing to do with that. They're fearful of losing massive profits that they're making. Um, and when you look at actually Teal & Whiskey, which is an Irish brand, 
78% of Teal and Whiskey is owned by Bacardi. They did a bottle of Ukrainian, they did a, a, mm. a, a charity bottle, 300 bottles at 85 euro, which was going directly to Ukrainian children. So that's 22,500 euro. Mm. Bacardi said that they would give $1 million uh, to the Red Cross to help with Ukraine. And yet they paid 12 million in income tax to the Russian government. Okay, but if you so take the McDonald's um, example, is it not counterproductive to pull out, uh, regardless of what your intentions are? Because not only... Uh, Will the Russian government get the tax that it would have got uh, over off McDonald's operating in Russia? But it will also get all of the profits. Yeah, but the point is, I suppose, if if that is going to happen, I actually won't have an issue with that because that's they're either the Russian government or that's Russian business people, or that's people within Russia who are going to take over those companies and sell the same products. So I've no issue if that's going to be the Russian government doing that. But what I do have the issue with is uh, Western companies, companies who are operating throughout the globe, continuing to operate and make massive profits in Russia. And the only reason they're making those massive profits is because everyone else has pulled out. All of their competitors have pulled out. So that's why this is a huge increase, and that's why they're staying there. Uh, and that's 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 the issue I have with it all, all, all in all, when you okay. look at it. Um, uh, and would you go fur- further? Would you look to banning these products in the country? No, what I, no, what I would say... In in terms of Ireland, uh, no. What I would say is that uh, my point today really is that we shouldn't sell them in Leinster House. But what I would say is we should put a boycott on them until the three companies are removed from the international sponsors of war list. Uh, and that is a that is a list that is compiled by the Ukrainian government by their national uh, corruption agency. Uh, and when those uh, when those three companies are removed from that list, then I have no issue with it whatsoever. But while they're on that list, I have a serious issue with it. Okay, um, would you uh, extend uh, out uh, this call to ban these products uh, to products coming from other countries? Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, uh, there's a, a lot of talk about boycotting Israeli products at the moment. Uh, there's the Occupied Territories Bill that was uh, in front of uh, the government, France's Black Bill, which would ha- have uh, barred uh, produce coming here from Occupied Territories. Um, do, do you do you support that bill, by the way? Yeah, I, I, I hadn't previously, Michael, to be honest about it. Um, and I hadn't done it because that was part of government policy when it became before the Senate. Uh, uh, I think it was maybe six months ago, Francis brought it before the Senate previously. But I have to say, my view is completely changed. I never really had a strong view one way or the other, to be frank about it. But my view has totally kind of changed when you see the horrific stuff that's happening in Gaza, where people are being bombed into oblivion by the Israeli Defence Forces. Um, and it would be a bit disingenuous for me to kind of come on and say we should do all of the, we it would be disingenuous for me to suggest that we should boycott all of these agencies and all of these companies who are operating in Russia and maybe not consider the same thing for Israel. Um, so I'm I'm certainly I'm being quite frank with that. I am certainly open to making the same call, but I would need to be perfectly honest. I would need to do far more research myself into what companies are still operating there before I made a similar call. But I'm certainly open to it. I, I'm not opposed to it by any means. And of course, we can do, do these things by legislation, or there can be house rules such as uh, the bar, uh, the doll bar, uh, which could bar the. Uh, three drinks that you've mentioned uh, because yeah. of profits being made in Russia. But we all have a personal choice in all of this. Uh, we can boycott shops, we can boycott products uh, and so on. Uh, and is that the way you'd be acting and encouraging others to act? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the reason why I'm talking about Leinster House in particular is because if you look at everything that we have done in Leinster House since this invasion in March 2022, we've had a joint sitting for President Zelensky 
We've flown the Ukrainian flag every day. We've hosted two pretty graphic photo exhibitions showing, you know, the real horrors of war. The Kankola and the Kierlock, the Taoiseach and the Taunashta have all visited Ukraine. We regularly light up Leinster House at night. We've had multiple delegations of Ukrainian MPs and ministers. The Ukrainian ambassador to Ireland has become a firm friend of many of us in Leinster House. So I think with all of that support and really worthwhile support, it doesn't make sense to me that we would still continue to sell the products of companies that are literally profiteering off the Ukrainian invasion uh, on the same campus and on the same premises. Um, and when you say about, I suppose, what happens next or when you said about who makes the decision, there's a group called um, the Oireachtas Commission, and that's a group of civil servants and politicians, and they oversee the actual running of Leinster House, the delivery of services in Leinster House. They, they make all the decisions um, in terms of the campus. So it'll be a decision for them. It's chaired by the Cancola. Uh, I'm going to write to the Commission later this morning asking them to consider my proposal. Uh, it'll be discussed then at their next meeting, which takes place in the second week of December. Uh, and hopefully uh, it will be considered because other parliaments in Europe are doing this. Sweden has done it with the same companies. Finland has done it. The House of Commons and the Scottish Parliament are both considering it as well. So I think it's, uh, I think it's no harm for us to do the same thing. Okay, I was uh, speaking to Fergus O'Dowd uh, just before you came on the line and he was telling us uh, that there was a lot of talk at the Fine Gael Convention over the weekend about the next general election. He believes that there should be an election next year and in fact that there will be one next year. Uh, would you be of the same view? Uh, it's hard to know. Uh, the, the latest that this government can go to is about the 12th of March 2025. Um, and I think because you have three parties in government in terms of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens, it's not going to be down to the Taoiseach just to call an election whenever he wants an election called because there's two other party leaders. So it'll have to be some sort of an agreement that the three of them will come to. So my view is um, it would be sensible for me to prepare for an October general election if I'm selected to contest the next election by Fine Gael members. It's sensible to prepare for an election that may come next October. Um, but in reality, I think the government will go the full term and will last till March. So prepare for the, I suppose, you know, I'm preparing for something a little bit sooner, but if not, we're ready for March. But in reality, mm. it'll be the difference of five months one way or the other. It would be very unusual for a general election to be fought over international issues. If there was to be a general election tomorrow, I think uh, it certainly would be a big part of uh, the campaign and in particular in relation to the Middle East and the conflict in Gaza at the moment uh, when you see so many people taking to the streets as was the case over the weekend calling for the Israeli ambassador to be expelled that in itself could be a significant issue. The government has taken its position for diplomatic reasons uh, but as we discussed earlier on it's quite possible that by the end of uh, this week all our citizens will be out of Gaza and Emily Hand will be released by Hamas. Uh, do things change if that is uh, the case? Because that priority that the government has given to Irish citizens uh, is no longer there because all are out and safe and well. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair point to make. But uh, the point that has been made in the last week with, in relation to the expulsion of any ambassador is um, that diplomatic lines, when you keep them open between countries, they're not necessarily there to say how friendly we are, or how great we are, or how nice you are. Diplomatic, uh, diplomatic communication is there to also really, really stress how we are. What you're doing is wrong by any sense of uh, a way to measure this. What you're doing is utterly wrong. It's horrific, to be quite frank about it. And it's important that you have those channels open to be able to say that frankly. So that's what it is at this point in time, which I accept. If we do get all of those... Um, 
if we do get all of those hostages out, as you've mentioned, on Irish citizens out of Gaza, well, perhaps then it can be re- revisited. But I still would be of the view that you keep diplomatic relations open, uh, no matter what, to really be able to get the point across that you are doing something that is, you're, you're basically murdering people uh, in Gaza in an open air prison that has twice the size of the population of Dublin, the same size of Dublin. Uh, and I don't have an issue with that. And again, I've kind of changed my view on it as well, Michael, because a year ago I was uh, saying in the Senate that we should expel the Russian ambassador. And the point was made to me back then that you need to keep those diplomatic chains open to be able to get that point right across all the time. Uh, and that's my own view on it at the minute. OK, well, look, thank you indeed for sharing your view and uh, for joining us for that matter. Cheers, uh, Michael. Thank you indeed. Uh, Fine Gael Senator John McGann. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reid Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. I really must uh, apologise for taking so long to come to comments uh, today. A lot of people in touch with us. uh, Sorry for the long wait. It's been a a very busy programme. But many thanks to everybody who's been in touch. And thank you, Noel, for your WhatsApp message. We did get it earlier on when we were speaking to Peter Fitzpatrick. And Noel said, if Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael put a proposal to expel the Israeli ambassador, Peter Fitzpatrick would vote in favour of the proposal. What's happening in Gaza is the same as what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. It is genocide, Noel says, while the world looks on. Well, thank you indeed uh, for that, Noel. Uh, People will look on this conflict differently. It's certainly not a view, your view, that is, uh, that's uh, shared by Israelis. And let's get some insight into Israeli thinking. Uh, It's uh, a piece now that we're going to hear from former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, who was speaking to Euronews over the weekend about the Israeli objective of ending Hamas. Every citizen, no means every baby, every child that is killed is terrible. Okay? So, I don't want to argue Mm. about the numbers. Everyone that is killed there, it's terrible. When the United Nations, and Great Britain, for instance, instructed the ambassadors in the UN to vote against uh, ceasefire. In other words, when they, they condoned the Israeli continued military operation. What did they expect? That there will not be some casualties? We haven't yet come to the, even to the heart of this operation. Hanunes, which is in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, is the real headquarters of Hamas. They, they have the leadership, they are hiding, they have the bunkers, they have the command positions, they have the launching uh, pits. Right, that's Ahud Elmert, a former Israeli Prime Minister. We'll hear more from uh, that interview with Euronews over the weekend in just a moment. But let's listen to the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, who was talking about uh, this conflict and what has led to this conflict and a long history of Israeli oppression. Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. 
Guterres says that this history led to the Hamas attack on the 7th of October. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas. And those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Excellencies, even war has rules. We must demand that all parties uphold and respect their obligations under international humanitarian law. Take constant care in the conduct of military operations to spare civilians and respect and protect hospitals and respect the inviolability of UN facilities which today are sheltering more than 600,000 Palestinians. That's Antonio Guterres. Now let's uh, go back to some of your messages, uh, a text uh, that comes to us from Margaret, who says she never heard anything as daft as the idea of expelling the Israeli ambassador. You don't change people's opinions by being like them. You set a different set of examples, says Margaret. Well, thank you indeed uh, for sharing that thought with us. Uh, Of course, uh, there is a lot of concern about what people are describing as Israeli war crimes. Uh, Let's go back to Antonio Guterres, who's been talking about war crimes on both sides. The relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties, and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. I mourn and honor dozens of UN colleagues working for UNRWA. Sadly, at least 35 and counting killed in the bombardment of Gaza over the last two weeks. I owe to their families my condemnation of these and many other similar killings. Right, that's Antonio Guterres uh, again there. Now, uh, we'd uh, text uh, come to us while I was speaking to Fergus O'Dowd about a border poll uh, from somebody who was none too impressed with me. This is Jerry in Wilkinson. He says, for you, uh, or do you not think that, that the country is doing very well as it is without upsetting everything, looking for a united Ireland? That will lead to a return to violence on one side or another. I'm really looking forward to the general election, Jerry says. In 2025, uh, he's not buying into the idea that uh, there will be an election next year, obviously. James Andrade says, why are people not marching on the Egyptian embassy as they are the ones stopping the Irish from leaving Gaza? I don't think that is uh, the case, uh, James. Uh, I take it, uh, you're talking about uh, Egypt not taking people in from Gaza, but uh, I think Irish citizen holders should be allowed into Egypt. It's uh, down to the Israelis who gets out. So I think uh, that uh, you're probably well aware of that. Uh, But if you are supporting the Israeli side, um, I think you'd probably be interested to hear more uh, from former Prime Minister Ehud Almert, who we heard from recently, because a lot of people in Israel are very upset with the Israeli government, not for what it is doing in Gaza, but how it failed in terms of its own security and had no forewarning of the Hamas attack on the 7th of October. You have seen the weaponry, you haven't seen the leaders, but look, I, I don't know, there are so many fake news. It's now part of life, everything is spread carelessly. Had you asked me two weeks ago, I'd have told you that the center is really in Canyonas. What Israel needs to do now is to announce that when the military battle will be over, immediately Israel is prepared to embark on negotiations with the Palestinian Authority for a two-state solution. 
that will then include Gaza as part of the Palestinian state. And that's Ahud Almert. Uh, and in that interview with Euronews, uh, he did address the concern that people have about Israeli security, particularly given how inferior, as he put it, Palestinians are. This is kind of a, a shocking clip uh, that I'm going to play for you now. We'll have to make a very thorough investigation. One thing I know, deep down, the decision makers, when presented with the potential of such an attack, say, come, these Arabs, these inferior Arabs, what do they know? What can they do? Are they going to be a match for us? We, the Israelis, the startup nation, with all the sophistication, with all the brains, with all the courage, with everything. They prove to us that they are equal to us. They are serious. They are sophisticated. They are just brutal. We will have to destroy them. Okay, I must admit, when I listened to that, I couldn't believe my ears. That's Ahud Almert. Former Prime Minister in Israel speaking exclusively to Shona Murray on Euronews over the weekend. Uh, thanks to Paddy Duffy, who was in touch very early this morning. Apologies to T- Paddy for the delay in coming to your comment. And he says, I'll start by saying I condemn absolutely the barbarism of what Hamas did to Israel- Israeli civilians on the 7th of October. Now, if you can imagine a strip of land at its widest being uh, the equivalent to the distance from Clara Head to Dunleer, east to west, 12 kilometres, 7.5 miles, and 63 kilometres, 3.7 miles at its narrowest, north to south. The distance is from Dundalk to Julianstown, 41 kilometres, or 25 miles. That's the Gaza Strip. Now put 2.3 million people on that strip of land, of which the majority are children and then let loose one of the world's best military on them. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Unfortunately, it's not the fish in this particular barrel. So my question is, where the hell do the Palestinian people of Gaza go that is safe? Ireland or the desert, as one of the Israeli government politicians suggests, maybe that's the plan. It sounds as if the Gaza Palestinians to hell or connect moment has come, says Paddy Duffy. Thank you indeed uh, for that, Paddy, uh, as always. Uh, and uh, obviously a lot of thought went into that comment. Indeed, I'd imagine a lot of calculations on the miles and uh, kilometres uh, that were involved in the distances uh, between the various places. Thank you indeed uh, for all of that, Paddy. Uh, much appreciated. And uh, I think it probably gives us all something to think about uh, as we end up uh, today's programme. Thanks to Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LNFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. Listen back to the Michael Reed Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones.